Welcome to the 1909, your home at the state news for everything happening on campus and around Lansing. I'm Lily Gwinney and I'm back. Thanks to Liz Noss for filling in for me last week. We know it's very much cold and flu season, so bear with my slightly still sick sounding voice this week. So today we are going to recap false shooting threats at Michigan schools, a new East Lansing City Council member, and some new ASMSU measures. We'll also hear about an MSU student breaking into the music industry for a couple minutes of just good news. Then we're going to hear from culture editor Miranda Dunlap about her experience reporting sexual assault at MSU. I want to take a moment here and provide a brief trigger warning. This episode will contain discussion of sexual violence and may trigger trauma-related responses. Please tune us out if these are topics that could be mentally distressing for you. I promise everything you get from this podcast episode can be found on the State News website, so don't feel worried about missing anything if you skip this episode for mental health reasons. Please take care of yourselves. So all that being said, let's get into it. Okemos High School was evacuated on Tuesday, February 7th after a call to police gave false reports of shots fired in the building. Various school districts around the state received similar calls. Ingham County Sheriff Scott Rigglesworth said in a press conference Tuesday afternoon that the dispatch call had claimed there was an active shooter inside the school and that there were injuries pertaining to a specific classroom. Rigglesworth arrived at Okemos High School and said two Meridian Township officers entered the school and were able to get to the specific room and clear it within six minutes of the phone call being placed. The officers quickly found no signs of an active shooter or injuries on the campus. The students were quickly evacuated to the football field where they waited for buses to arrive to take them to a reunification point at 242 Church. FBI Special Agent David Porter said the FBI is working in coordination with several other local and state law enforcement agencies in communities affected by the hoax report. Porter said it is still to be determined whether or not the various calls are connected at this time, and since the investigation is still ongoing, Meridian Township Police Chief Ken Plaga said all the details of the call are not available to be shared. Other high schools around the state that received similar false threats on the same day include schools in Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Portage. East Lansing has a new city council member. Our very own Wajiho Kamal sat down with him last week to introduce him to our readers. Noel Garcia Jr. is East Lansing's first Latino council member and was appointed last month. Garcia, in a 4-0 vote, was chosen by the East Lansing City Council to serve the council's vacancy following the resignation of Lisa Babcock, who was elected to be a judge. He will complete Babcock's term that ends this upcoming November. However, Garcia said he hopes the seat is not just a temporary gig and he plans to run for re-election after the term ends, but he says he knows he has some learning to do first. Garcia began his career in law enforcement as one of the few officers of Hispanic descent at the Lansing Police Department. Wanting a change, he approached then-Captain Mike Dawson, who was in charge of human resources, where Garcia had then been put on a recruiting team and made the first full-time recruiting officer at the department. Following allegations from seven black officers facing disparate treatment by the department's disciplinary process, Garcia partnered with Terry Curry, Michigan State University professor and present-day associate provost, in changing the department's disciplinary policies. Garcia is an Ingham Intermediate School District Wilson Talent Center law enforcement instructor with a bachelor's and master's degree in criminal justice from MSU. He also was an adjunct professor at MSU for some time. Garcia has also served on the Hispanic Latino Commission of Michigan for two three-year terms. In 2018, he lost an election to the East Lansing School Board by only 39 votes. Following this, he became involved in the city's Independent Police Oversight Commission, where he continues to serve as a commissioner. In MSU news, ASMSU passed a sanctuary campus bill at its February 2nd General Assembly meeting. 
A sanctuary campus is a term taken from the sanctuary city movement that establishes a college campus as a place where there are certain policies to safeguard students or faculty that are undocumented immigrants. This includes limiting what information about students is given to federal immigration authorities as well as providing resources for students and faculty. The bill encourages working to establish MSU as a sanctuary campus to further help its students and faculty. During public comment, the president of DREAM MSU, Raquel Acosta, stood up and spoke about the importance of one of the bills being presented later on at the meeting. Many don't understand why this issue is so important, especially here in East Lansing, Acosta said. But the reason is simple, because this issue affects a significant amount of people in our community. MSU specifically boasts one of the largest international student populations. Since admitting its first international students in 1873, MSU has welcomed tens of thousands of international students to East Lansing. So now for our couple minutes of just good news, MSU senior Zier Ayana is making her way in the music industry, from posting song covers on Instagram to preparing for a move to LA after graduation. In early 2020, Ayana went to California for the first time to help her cousin move into an apartment at UCLA. On that same trip, she went to a studio where her cousin was modeling and was approached by a producer and engineer duo that was scouting out talent. They asked her if she did anything, meaning was she a singer, a model, an actress, and Ayana responded that she didn't do anything, but still swapped social media and contact information with the duo anyways. That week, she posted a cover of Stay by Rihanna on her Instagram the first time she had posted herself singing. A week later, the producing duo called her up asking why she had said she didn't do anything when she was clearly a singer posting videos to her 14,000 followers. Ayana had logged off social media shortly after posting her video, and she had no idea it was viewed over 100,000 times. She said the duo offered to fly her out to LA to start working on music, but she turned them down, but not for a lack of love of music. While her video wasn't the first time she had posted her talent publicly, telling the duo she didn't do anything wasn't the whole truth. As a kid, Ayana had very artistic dreams. She used to want to be an author or a fashion designer. She started playing instruments when she was four years old, and while these were good hobbies, she always knew she had to find a practical career. Ayana said this was why she turned down the offer to be flown out to L.A. and why she turned them down another five times after that. She was also afraid people would judge her. For this reason, putting herself in the public eye has been scary. However, she gained more confidence when she started to see that people were connecting with her voice. Roughly one year after her initial trip to California, Ayana started going back and forth between East Lansing and, and L.A., spending two weeks in each place at a time. However, this was a huge adjustment, and she was able to go to networking events and make connections with other producers and engineers, such as OVO Sound, a label started by Drake. She now has over 113,000 followers on Instagram, has released music on Spotify and Apple Music, and is moving to L.A. after she graduates this May. Ayana said that while she has goals for her music, she doesn't make it for anyone but herself. She doesn't write songs with the mindset that she's trying to write a hit. She writes them because it makes her feel what she wants to feel at the time. She said she's been offered record deals but is held off for logistical reasons and struggles she's faced as a black woman in the music industry. Though she's performed at venues and locations such as Miami and Hawaii, she still enjoys being part of events around campus like the Black Student Science events and Spartan Remix. It just makes me feel good because there's no pressure, Ayana said. You're not doing it because someone's going to give you money afterwards. You're not doing it because management is expecting you to or anything like that. It just feels very supportive and encouraging, and I felt really in tune with my community. Thanks so much to Culture Reporter Hannah Worley for our good news this week. I know I will be checking out Sierra's Spotify page later on. My playlist could use an update, and it's always fun to support a fellow Spartan. 
So that is it for our news roundup. Now I'd like to introduce our culture editor, Miranda Dunlap. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Lily. So I'm really grateful to have you on today because you're bringing attention to a really important issue right now with your writing. So last week you released a column here at the Snooze that gave a really raw, vulnerable look into the process of reporting sexual assault to the university. And I just want to read off the headline on air because I found it to be really powerful. You wrote, being sexually assaulted was awful. Reporting to MSU might have made it worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I know this is this is kind of nerve-wracking sometimes <laughs> to do this, but your story reached a ton of people. Looking at our most recent Twitter metrics, the tweet the story was attached to is viewed around 26,000 times, or actually 260,000 times. I misread that. So first off, how are you How are you feeling in the midst of all of this? Were you surprised at all by the response to the story? Yeah, um, I, I really didn't expect it to, you know, travel anywhere outside of, like, our our snooze Twitter circle and kind of people within the newsroom and people who closely follow us. Um, but it that was not at all the case. Um, it reached exactly the people that I think needed to read it. It reached um, MSU alumni who are survivors and people on this campus who are survivors and people in leadership positions who make decisions and, you know, maybe thought things were going better at the university than they are. Um, I think it it's, it's definitely been very overwhelming um, mm-hmm. knowing, putting something out there. One, having so many people, you know, read your thoughts. And two, having kind of labeled myself as a survivor for mm-hmm. the world to see is also nerve-wracking because that is definitely something that I had been keeping to myself and my yeah. close friends. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So one of the things you describe in your article is hitting this sort of point of realization that you couldn't stay quiet anymore about your experience with the Office of Institutional Equity, or OIE. What was that moment like for you? Was there any one thing that was really a catalyst for this decision to share? Yeah, I mean, because throughout throughout the reporting process, there have been you know points where I was feeling good about what was happening, particularly those were the experiences that I had with the Center for Survivors. I have a therapist and I have an advocate there, both of which are, you know, on my side and are with me throughout the entire process. And so there were points in the beginning where I was like, this is, you know, this is really great. And then as time went on, um, it felt like, you know, some punches would be thrown here and there. But the moment that it all kind of came crashing down was right when we went on winter break and, you know, the news broke about, the unveiling of the portrait of President, ex-president Luana K. Simon, and um, everything that surrounded that—you know, the timing of the unveiling, the moving it to a larger venue to accommodate more folks, the people who decided to attend, what was said about their attendance, what they said about their attendance, mm-hmm. um, the protesters—and you know, it that moment felt was really heavy on my heart because here I was you know, battling through this very hard process and the institutional response is just so out of touch, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seemed. Um, it That was the moment where I was just like, I cannot actually fathom the disrespect that that is. It was just so disrespectful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted... My immediate reaction was like, I need to be, I need to show up in protest with those fellow survivors who are mad about this, but I, I can't as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And that was when I had to really think about, like, where where do my morals lie and where do I draw the line and, you know, pretending like I'm not a human with experiences. Mm-hmm. So, 
And that, yeah, that was something that we reported on, and a lot of people felt similarly um, about Simon's portrait unveiling. Um, so you wrote that your decision to report your assault to the university felt like the most obvious thing to do until the process began to reveal itself as arduous and demoralizing. Did you have any hopes for what the ideal reporting process would have looked like before going in, or what, what would have been the best case scenario? I, I guess the funny thing is, is I didn't think too hard about it I didn't really have any hopes of like man I hope it goes like this because Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'd have to consider that things might go wrong Mm -hmm. um you know to the best of my knowledge MSU has these resources that they pour money and staff into and that are you know much larger than that at other universities so Mm -hmm. you just kind of figure that you know five years out from the largest scandal of all time that things are in, you know, tip-top shape. <laughs> um, you, uh, I, I guess I really didn't consider, I, I really thought, like, I'm doing the right thing. I might not get the outcome that I want, but I truly thought that that would be the hardest part was maybe not receiving um, the justice that I deserved. Mm-hmm. But I did not think that, like, the throughout would be a process that was filled with so many, you know, just like very disheartening experiences yeah and one of the bigger things you wrote about was this sense that msu's entire policy surrounding rvsm incidents is to fail survivors and then learn from those failures but never to really make the necessary changes to prevent future harm is there anything you want administrators to know about how oia's handling of sexual assault reflects on the university and the campus community yeah um and there's a lot I could say here because mm-hmm. obviously that is that is not their written policy, but mm-hmm. it's it's definitely um, it, in writing my column. I was reading all of the things that the university has said about their process and their improvements, and that really you know stuck out to me as this sounds really great on paper, but then you think about okay, we're constantly learning from our failures, and then you realize who's being failed. It is the people who are hurting the most, mm-hmm. um, and that <laughs> I, I guess that that was like a striking realization to come to was that like if I write about this and I put this out there, like this will hopefully be something that they learn from, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, yet again, someone else had to go through something very hard and difficult and hurtful in order to have changes be made. Um, And I guess the second part of your question, how anything I want administrators to know about the handling is just that it's not on on their side, it's like it's a bureaucratic process. Mm -hmm. On our side, it is pain and experiences that are hard to think about and we don't necessarily enjoy that we have to think about this every day in order to like go through with the process and seek justice but that's the truth because mm-hmm. that's kind of like I said it's ingrained in us that reporting is what you should do when something like this happens um so I guess just I hope <laughs> that the biggest takeaway was one institutional behavior does have an effect on survivors personally, even if it doesn't seem personal. And two, the communication directly from the OIE has the potential to be very triggering and very hurtful if not done correctly, Mm -hmm. both of which I experienced. Yeah, and so that's actually what our next question is kind of about is you described what it was like to get this very coarse, very insensitive correspondence from your university-appointed investigator. 
And can you tell us a little bit more about mm-hmm. why it's so important for correspondence like this to be conducted with care and sensitivity? Yes. <laughs> um, I That was definitely um, the part that I was most nervous about writing because when I received um, the follow-up email, you know, weeks after my last communication with the investigator, just in the middle of the day, no trigger warning, the subject heading says statement attached or here's your statement mm-hmm. um, and you assume that you open the email it's going to p- be a PDF file of your statement you mm-hmm. don't you don't assume that the email is going to contain very explicit follow-up questions about mm-hmm. the assault yeah which it did mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so when I was writing about this I you know like took a step back and thought for a second like are people going to think I'm like just being whiny about this like <laughs> is this something that like you know we I just have to like suck it up and deal with and then mm-hmm. I you know that that became an absurd thought to me like if that is the status quo that should not be mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody um no it, it's it's like I said before these communications have the possibility to be very very triggering and for someone to just you know wanting me receiving that email me opening it was me thinking okay I'm on to the next step in this very long process Mm -hmm. you don't you don't think it's going to be something like that that has I mean it shook me up for the rest of the day I didn't know how to respond to the questions we conducted our first um I I gave my statement over zoom so I was Mm -hmm. seeing that person face to face I knew it was coming I knew that I was going to be asked follow-up questions that day did not think that two weeks later I was going to receive explicit questions mm-hmm. over email. And kind of be forced to rehash all of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so just um, understanding, like to being trauma-informed and understanding that those questions can be very difficult, that th- that would have never happened. There would have been a trigger warning. There would have been a warning. Can I ask you some questions that might mm-hmm. be explicit or should we set up a time so you can prepare? Like yeah. that that really should be the bare minimum. Yeah, the, just the <laughs> standard for those conversations. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. So to answer your question, it's it's important because these are these are the experiences that leave people re-traumatized. I've had so many people message me and say, it was like reading my own story back because mm-hmm. I, I remember those emails abrupt in the middle of the day, often, like someone's put it so perfectly, like it robbed them of many, many days being mm-hmm. re-traumatized by this reporting process and this communication over and over again. Yeah. So it's not just me. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I know it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So any final thoughts on how you hope stepping out with your story will help make change for future members of the MSU community? Yeah. Um, I... I didn't, you know, write the story hoping that administration would see it and immediately, you know, fall in line and be like, what can we do (laughs) to save everything? But just, um, you know, using this, I feel like it's almost a responsibility as, you know, someone who went through it and someone who has semi a little bit of a platform, it felt, it felt necessary (laughs) to draw that line, Mm -hmm. stop being you know, silent because it feels weirdly um, similar to that of those who are complicit in the scenario when I'm silent Mm -hmm. Um, and really, you know, connect with the survivors who have gone through the same thing and let them know like this, you're not alone. If Mm -hmm. you experience this, well, it's because it happens all the time. (laughs) Um, And so I think that that has been the most rewarding part. And Mm -hmm. I I think I accomplished what I was setting out to do with that, which was to reach others. So yeah, well, I, I know certainly we here at the State News are really, really proud of you. 
for sharing this, and I hope all of our 1909 listeners are as well. And thank you so much for joining us today and having this conversation. Thank you. And I'd encourage everyone to go read Miranda's full story on our website to learn more about this process and how it impacts survivors. Thanks so much for everyone um, who tuned in. This has been the 1909 from the State News, and signing off for me, Lansing, I'm Lily Gwinnie.